welcome. This is Carl's Rockhoster Podcast. All right. So today I've got here David John Tovey. David is a formerly homeless artist, educator, and activist who works in a range of media. He's a photographer, painter, as well as an installation artist and performance maker. David has exhibited internationally in locations such as Somerset House, Tate Modern, and he's also the founder of the UK's first One Festival of Homeless Arts. He speaks regularly at housing and homelessness events and teaches art to people experiencing homelessness at the Pillion Trust and Passage Day Center. His Man on Bench performance have earned him significant acclaim and have taken place on the pavement of South Bank and the Holes of Tate Exchange. And in the words of Patrick Strudwick from The Economist, Tovey went from cooking for the Queen to rifling through beans for his supper. He is a startling story of endurance against the odds and of a social safety net failing at every turn. David, welcome. Morning. <laughs> Thank you for being here, man. Thank you for being here. Much appreciated. That was yeah. a good intro. I like it. I'm glad you liked it, yeah. <laughs> so I started doing the right thing then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It makes me sound really good. good. Um. <laughs> yeah, good to see you, man. Good to have you, you buddy, here. And you. Yeah, it's been, it's been a little while. And uh, since you are resident in art, uh, artist in residence here at the Old Durham Art Centre, and uh yeah life has been a real roller coaster hasn't it oh my god yeah um yeah you could say that um even since leaving the diorama sort of so i left um i'm trying to think now nearly a year ago and yeah so much has happened since then i know, um, I it's, know. it's yeah it's been a crazy old uh year you're just about to launch uh Another show at Tate, aren't you? Like yeah, Tate, Tate, uh, Liverpool. Tate Liverpool. Yeah, um, that's in two weeks' time. Wow. So um, I'm taking my soldier's story uh, installation up to Tate Liverpool, which was at Tate Modern uh, last April. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what's the soldier story? What, what, where yeah, the inspiration so... came from, and perhaps uh, sources that you. Where, where did you get the content from? So basically, um, when I came off the streets and I was living in a homeless uh, hostel in South London, it was a hostel for ex-servicemen and, and being an ex-soldier myself. Um, I got to meet loads of guys and stuff like this. And um, it's always played on my mind that so many homeless soldiers uh, so many soldiers end up homeless on the streets um not just the uk but worldwide you know it's two in ten in the uk end up on the streets and and i think well hang on a sec you know it's a hundred years to the end of the first world war this year and surely we should have learned something by now that war not only um, destroys people and kills people during the war, but it actually destroys people who've been to war, you know, for the rest of their lives. You know, you know, for me, I didn't start suffering with my PTSD until 20 years after I'd left the army. Um, so there's psychological damage which is done for the rest of their lives. And these guys then suddenly, you know, they've served their country, gone to war to protect us as a, as a civilization, as a, as a democratic country. And it suddenly 
these guys fall on hard times, whether it's mental health or, you know, a breakdown of a marriage or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then they end up on the streets. And as a country, we then criminalize them. You know, we walk past them, we ignore them, we treat them as if they're um, scum of the earth. And it's, and I wanted to see how and how that breakdown happens and why suddenly when we see soldiers coming back from war, we treat them as if they're heroes. But then when they're on the streets, we treat them as if they're criminals. And that's still exactly the same person. They're still that person who went to war to help us, but we're not helping them. So I wanted to share their stories in an art piece. Um, and the best way I found was with the soldier's story. Um, and it's five soldiers in a firing squad um, and they're all taped up around their mouths. That represents how they don't ask for help, but also because they're voiceless. Um, and as a soldier, you're taught to get yourself out of any situation. Um, so you have this pride um, and that inhibits you with asking for help and getting, uh, you know, being signposted to those places which can help sort you out. Then on, they're in full Iraq uniform, desert uniform, which has all been used from the first Iraq war. Where did you get those from? So um, I have a supplier up in the Midlands who um, he has so much old stock of military uniforms, so I got it from him. Um, That's an interesting thing. Uh, just uh, I've, I've been, this is like, uh, God, 16 years ago. That was 2011, uh, 2011, 20, 2001, yeah. So um, I was in uh, Edinburgh and uh, at the time I was like really into like, you know, those army clothes yeah, and stuff. Yeah. And I went to this charity shop and they found for like very little money uh, a jacket and a pair of trousers and they were obviously secondhand. Yeah. But at the time I didn't really understand and uh, I looked inside and the label had a number and the name of a person written yeah. on it. And just years after that I realized that, oh my goodness, that was probably worn by a soldier, yeah. you know. Uh, and, and this is the thing like you know, and I, I, I had to have actual uniforms which were actually used in war as well because I needed the whole art piece to connect emotionally as well. So when we see soldiers, you know, you know, we see a lot of photography, we see f uh, film footage um, on the news and stuff like that, but we never actually have that connection straight up and military uniform has this um very unique smell to it and i remember when i ordered all the stuff from this uh, friend of mine and it arrived and it actually came to the diorama here i had it delivered here and i opened this the boxes and then this smell hit me and suddenly that evoked emotion in me um and suddenly i, I was taken back to when i was in the army and i was like wow and it was the exact same smell. So straight away, I had this connection to the art piece. Then with those uniforms, I then, I dressed the mannequins in the firing squad and then on the backs of their jackets, I've got the guy's story from when he was in the army to when he was actually on the streets. And they're brutal. They are absolutely brutal stories and people don't understand this. So, 
as a set of pieces, um, and I'm one of the stories is my story because I didn't want people thinking that I, how do I put it, was trying to um, get recognition out of people's pain. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I needed to clarify that yes, these are, these stories are horrific, um, and it, the, 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 half of it should never have happened. But I'm one of those stories as well. Um, so when people read the sequence, so they read the five soldiers, and then I'm the last soldier they get to, and then I'm the only one which is named. So all the others are anonymous. So um, you're part of the piece yeah, yourself, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I put myself into the actual um, piece because, like I said, I, I I wanted people to know that I have a connection to that art piece as well. Um, because the thing is, you know. We we don't know the stories of people sat on the streets, and this is another reason I wanted it. So another reason it was an actual firing squad was because when we walk past a homeless person in the street, we try and um, ignore them. We try not to get that eye contact, you know, and that homeless person feels completely isolated, you know, because people won't connect. So I wanted this art piece as well, the firing squad, to be face up against walls so those soldiers did not connect with the people viewing. So they didn't have that eye contact. So it meant that the actual person viewing the art piece has to come and engage with the art piece, which never happens to the people on the streets. Um, so for me, if someone left that the exhibition and they're like wow, that could be my mother, my brother, my sister, you know, my friend's son who's in the army sat on the street and we don't know this because we never talk to these people on the street. So if it, if it just makes one person go up and talk to somebody on the street, then it's been a success. Absolutely, absolutely. Do you have any plans on bringing uh, to London There's a specific yes. one? I really want to. Um, I'm in talks with several different places at the moment. Um, I really wanted to put it into the summer show, but I can't because it's already been in the Tate Modern. Mm -hmm. So I'm a little bit gutted about that because I thought that would be an absolute perfect place for the soldiers to yes, be. But uh, I'd really like it to go into a military um, museum as well because it, it, it shows the aftermath of what war does. You know, we, you know, this year, obviously, centenary, everyone's going to be waving their uni uh, union flags, going, yeah, you know, we won the war, and blah, 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 blah. And they celebrate that fact, but they're not celebrating what that war has done to hundreds and thousands of people across the world. And, and that's where my artwork does. Uh, it actually shows the bad side, but also the good side of it as well. Mm. On the light of that, David, um, can you tell, can tell, tell us a little bit about uh, how, was, uh, how was your life uh, before uh, the army, how, how you, 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 grew up, you grew up in, in Kent? Kent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so how was life uh, all the way up till uh, the point that you traveled to Australia with the army and, and perhaps if you could link to, Ooh. well, cooking for the queen? <laughs> wow, yeah, um, that's a lot. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I grew up in Kent. Um, I come from a very poor, poor working class family. Um, we, a large family, um, Sometimes I used Brothers to, and sisters? Yeah, I've got four sisters, uh, two brothers. Um, sadly, one of my brothers has passed away, but um, I've got lots of nieces and nephews. 
a lot of nieces and nephews. I've got some great nieces and nephews. Um, yeah, I've, I've got a fantastic family. Um, they've always been very supportive of me. Um, but when I was growing up, I was going through, um, you know, a lot of problems sort of like mentally, I guess. Um, obviously, I was still trying to find out who I was as a youngster. And when you're growing up in a big family, trying to get the attention and stuff like that. So I left home when I was 16. Um, sometimes I think it was a good thing. Sometimes I think it was a bad thing. Um I'm a gay man and I think that's why I left home because I was from a very working class, heterosexual orientated family. Um, and I felt not part of it as such. Did um, they in any way made you feel like that? No, or? no, 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 not at all. Um, it's just, I, I'm a, I think it's because I, I know it's really hard to believe. I'm a very shy person. Um, and to grow up in the 80s and with everything going on in my mind and, um, yeah, I, I don't know. It was just a difficult time for me to realise who I was. So the only way I could do that was by leaving home and actually finding myself properly. So I joined the army when I was 16 so I, you know, it's funny because I looked, I looked like I was a twelve-year-old. <laughs> I did. I hadn't even gone through puberty when I joined the army. It was unbelievable. I was so, I was tiny. I was five foot four. I was like less than seven stone. Uh, I remember my the the uh, the guy who signed me into uh, join the army. He was like, I've seen more fat on a chip, and I was like. Yeah. Cheers. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it was fun. Um, I, I, I don't so know. So you joined the army at the age of 16. 16, yeah. And, uh, and, and you stayed uh, with them till... Six years, I did. Six years. Yeah, so... Um, and during this period, you, you, you travel quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, um, do you remember any, any particular stories, anything in particular that you experienced <sighs> that marked you in any way? I spent I spent a long time in Norway um, doing Arctic training. Um, I went to Kenya to the jungle. Um, trying to think, Bosnia for a while. Um, I uh, I'm trying to think. It's such, now, a, how, it's such a long time ago. <laughs> like, uh. what, what was it like? I mean, like on daily, did you have like days was, off? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a normal get, job, like think, five days a week? Or? Oh, definitely not a normal job. My average day, um, if I was away, say if we were in Norway on tour, um, it, I would start at five in the morning um, and normally finish around about 11 to 12 at night. God, that was long, long a days. long day. Long, long day. And then we'd sleep, and that would go on for, so we'd do a five-month tour. Um, and didn't really get that many days off when we were abroad um, on tour. So I think I went a three-month period with no days off. Um, but this was all part of the army. You know, it was hard, hard work. And being a chef in the army as well, you're, you work the longest hours, it's the hardest job in the British Army um, and you get the most abuse <laughs> in the British Army because if they haven't got their food, they haven't, you know, they they're, they're, uh, they throw their toys out the pram a lot. Um, 
so yeah, it, it is very very difficult. Can I ask you difficult. something uh, specific about that? Like uh, when it comes to cooking, for example, to the British Army. I mean, uh, you, you you had a, a great experience on that. Uh, wh what is it like in terms of uh, nutritional aspects of it? Because um, we always hear about um, uh, food in the hospitals not being that good, and uh, we hear a few stories about that happens yeah. uh, in the army as well what, what what's do you, so, do you remember like the quality where, i mean did you actually at the time paid attention where the source of whatever you cook in uh, where, where the food was coming from when i was in um so i was in from 1991 so this is a very long time ago to 97 um the food was phenomenal right it was everything was cooked like you, you, we, there wasn't a single thing you bought Like, so everything from your pastries to um, your bread to your your sauces, everything was handmade right, from scratch. Um, then in, I think it was round about 1995, um, the, the government started getting rid of the military chefs. So they, they started to, um, because they wanted to privatize all the training colleges. So that all went to civilian chefs. So it completely changed. Um, I think this is why in sort of like, it, you start to get disheartened a bit because then as a military chef, most of your time is then spent away on tour. You're never really based in the UK. Um, and for me, that, that got a little bit tiresome. Um, So yeah, it was it was bad. But the nutritional side, like in Norway, every soldier used to have have to have an extra two thousand calories a day to be able to cope with being in Arctic conditions. So they have to eat really, really well. I, I remember we were in the Arctic Circle, and we were cooking in tents, right? So we had big tents, and we had big like gas trailers. So that they looked like um like a big metal trailer which gets pulled on the back of a truck right? and that, that has all our cook sets in and equipment and I remember trying to do because even if you're in the Arctic they still have to eat the same standard of food as what they would in the barracks so you're trying to do a fried breakfast right mm. but cooking frozen eggs God. So you're trying to do a fried Let's egg with a fro frozen egg it is just unbelievable so you, you get the um <laughs> It was so bad, right? So if if health and like if uh, health and safety were around when I was in, we would have been shut down because we used to have to put the gas bottles in the middle of the cook sets up at a higher level to stop the gas from freezing. God, right? that is dangerous. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> so you'd have all the gas stoves and then the gas bottles sat behind the gas stoves to try and stop them because otherwise you'd only use sort of like a like a not even a quarter of a bottle because the rest is frozen of wow. the gas it was unbelievable and we used to have to put our eggs in there um, I remember um, cooking uh, peeling frozen potatoes uh, you know and you just could never feel your hands um, your, from your waist upwards used to be you'd be in t-shirts in the Arctic Circle oh my goodness but from the waist down you'd be frozen because of like you know the gas levels in the tent wow um, We had a massive fire in um, one of the tents one year. Um, I'm going to say his name. He's going to kill me if he ever hears this. <laughs> But a chef called Colin Wills. He was um, he was making Yorkshire puddings, and I, I'll never forget this. And he'd put the tray of oil in the oven, shut the oven, walked over, got the mix, walked back again, 
as he opened the oven door, these flames just shot up and it caught fire to the tent straight away. And suddenly, our whole cook tent was on completely on fire like literally on fire and we're there with all these extinguishers like setting them off not knowing that these actual extinguishers were illegal like because you know the british army they don't change stuff like that you know these were like from the 1960s like and we were banging them like and all this dust was spraying everywhere we had troops trying to pull the tent off like this but then we still had troops coming in to try and eat the food. <laughs> and it was crazy. It was just like, no, you can't eat that. It'll kill you, man. Like, you know, it was just like... And then we then still had to get the food cooked. So we were then cooking outside, trying to make, um, I think it was like about 250 meals because the troops were stood there waiting for their food. You know, it didn't matter. They didn't care if there'd been a fire. They're like, we want our food. So of then we'd be there trying to cook whilst other teams were like trying to rebuild this tent. You know, and I think it was like something like minus 30 at the time. Jesus um, so yeah, th- yeah, things like that are fun. Um, and and then you never forget it. In, yeah, I can imagine. There are so many stories and uh, wow, what an experience it has. Wow. Yeah. It's all of those places that you travel and all of the people that you cooked for. Um, but yeah, then, I've, I've cooked for some amazing people, I must do you, admit. Do you have, like, from, from those six years in the army, do you do you regret in any way joining the army? Do you feel that uh, it was uh, worthwhile? Looking back, do you think uh, if you could go back and, and, and change the course, uh, do you think you could have done something different that could have perhaps... Uh, change your life massively in any way um possibly um at the time um so i joined the army not knowing that i still hadn't come to terms with who i was like whether i was straight gay or whatever like you know um and for me i didn't know at the time the british army it was illegal to be gay um, when i was in and so in the end i was asked asked to leave uh, the British Army because of my sexuality. Um, and for me, that was a bit of a kick in the teeth because... So you were actually asked to leave? Yeah, asked to leave, politely. Otherwise, would have Advised you, would to you, leave. Um, do you think you would have continued in the army if... No, probably not. Um, I, I think it was getting to the stage where I'd had enough anyway. Um, I tried leaving the previous year um, and then didn't. And then I was promoted and then, you know, and but then after the promotion, I was thinking, I don't know, I just lost interest. So then when um, the sexuality thing came into it, I thought, oh, that's actually quite an easier way of getting out. So, um, yes, it did. It was a kick in the teeth for me, um, you know, because you'd you'd grown up in a society it wouldn't have have been the case on on not now no not now now because it i think um it came into law in 1999 i think it was that you could be gay in the british army but it it wasn't put into practice and uh, became law until 2002 i think it was um so i was in it beforehand but um yeah, for me, I think it's, it goes back to sort of like my childhood days. Like you know, you, you used to sort of like see people like uh, Boy George um, on on TV and go wow, and then people slag him off for you know being different and being gay and stuff like this, right? And you know, and you you, you went to schools where they were telling you that it was wrong to be gay, you know, and everything was wrong. So then suddenly, 
I'd gone through that stage, started to come comfortable with who I was. And then suddenly I was then being asked to leave the army because I was gay, being told it was wrong again. You know, I was bullied a bit while I was in the army because of it. Um, that's never, I've always remembered that. Um, so, you know, there was bad times, but then the army also, I'm so thankful I did it. I loved it. Um, I'm still friends with the guys I was in the army with. You know, this is 20-odd years later. Um, Where did the cooking... Uh, uh, I know that both so, your parents were, were yeah, chefs. Yeah, they were both chefs. Um, when you joined the army, were you already cooking uh, perhaps at home? and uh, Or did you actually end up like... Uh, yeah, learning. I did, because my mum taught me how to cook, um, and my mum's an amazing cook. Um, my dad was an amazing cook, um, and um, it's it was always there. But it's funny, because when I joined the army, <laughs> I didn't actually want to go and be a chef. I, I, I put two ideas down. My, my first choice was to be a pilot. I wanted to be a helicopter pilot. <laughs> I love flight. You know, the whole sort of like thing about flying. I wanted to be a Formula One driver. <laughs> There you go, you see. So that's what I, I signed up to do. And I didn't get enough on um, my test to get through. So they said, well, your third choice of being a chef, you can do that if you want. Everyone needs a chef. And I was like, oh, oh go on then. My parents were chefs. My granddad was a chef in the Navy. Um, So, you know, for me, it was... Some, natural course. Yeah, life. it was a natural course, and I was good at it. You know, it was something, you know, I was passionate about. When you say I was, do you I not was, cook yeah. I, I bet you cook for yourself. Come on. I do cook for myself, um... Well, and, you just, you and just I cook. told me off yeah, air, you yeah, you cook for 12 people. Yeah, I do, yeah. <laughs> so I, I still do put a hand into it, but I don't do it professionally no more. Um, I don't think I ever would. Um, I will ask you about that uh, yeah. later on in our conversation. Um, so, uh, so you were saying how, uh, how I linked it to Cooking for the Queen. So when I was yeah, in the please, army... That, that um, interesting one to hear. Yeah, so... I was stationed down in Dover, um, near Dover Castle. Um, I can't remember the name of the barracks no more. It's no longer there. It's been knocked down and sold for private housing. Um, another thing what I disagree with. Um, and um, But, you know, I was stationed down there with the Royal Green Jackets and the Queen was supposed to be coming down and visiting the barracks. And it was... It, I think it's quite funny. Um, they probably don't. But on the day she was supposed to be visiting, she didn't turn up. She she was ill. So they'd, they'd made the barracks so beautiful. They'd re-tarmacked, repainted. They'd done... It was just spotless, right? For nothing, because the Queen didn't come. So they were a little bit annoyed because they'd had... Re all the roads had been re-tarmacked and everything just for one person coming to visit in the barracks, which made me laugh because I thought, well, she's only seeing it as a pristine barracks, but that's not actually what it's like. It was falling apart. Um, so she didn't come. So then when we were doing Northern Ireland training down in, um, I can't remember the name of the barracks. Um, it's down in Sussex somewhere. Um, but we're doing all like street training and um, uh, basically they've got... Um, cities and towns built just for training purposes and you have to go and do all this training for safety you know the whole military thing and she came to visit when we were down there so i i got the opportunity to cook for her there um 
then I was also at Sandhurst. Um, I got to cook for. I think Did you actually meet her? In, yeah, 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 yeah. We we all we all got to meet her. She's an amazing person. Um, I'm I'm a massive royalist in a way, um, even though I'm a socialist as well. Um, so it's 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 like conflicting. But then I've always been a bit confused and conflicted. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, she. So I, you know, I, I'm always going to like the royal family. So Sanders, I got to cook for all the royal family. Um, they used to come and do all the pass out parades and they used to visit, obviously, uh, Harry and William, they all trained there. I think Prince Charles trained, trained there when he was there. Um, so yeah, there's always that. Um, I'm trying to think where else I've cooked for them. Um, you work in quite a few restaurants as well, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I've, um, I've cooked for a lot of famous people as well. Um, we will certainly mm. dive into that. Um, I'd like to, um ask you about um basically you know you had uh, some very uh serious health issues in the past and um it's the kind of stuff that you know it, it's very very difficult to i believe to talk about and and it's difficult uh, in life in general to endure for for for, for anyone And some people just uh, are not perhaps as lucky as you have been in the sense of uh Some people, you know, try and, and, and take their lives and, and they succeed on doing it yeah. and, and stuff like that. And sometimes uh, we, we don't know that well how to deal with our own minds because we go to school and we are taught all kinds of different things. But, but like the very basics of, of, of succeeding in life, perhaps, yeah. which is yeah. dealing with your own thoughts, with your mind and, and, and eating properly and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's kind of like uh, turn... Uh, well, people just don't 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 get to to to, to learn that. So um, basically, after suffering a stroke and and you had uh, a speedy recovery, you got back into work uh, right after. Uh, as a matter of fact, just a, a week after mm -hmm. that, and uh, you basically just ran the show again. So can you please just uh, walk us through um, what was it like at the time? And basically, you had neurocyphalase and and then. Just I love the way you say that. that. <laughs> How would you say it? Neurosyphilis. Oh, ah, okay. Yeah. There you go. Neurosyphilis. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Um, colon cancer, and then just right after that, you had a cardiac arrest as well. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Just it was... Um, tell us a bit about that. Do you know what? Um, for me, this, the, the sort of like the beginning of the story where my health uh, issues really came from sort of like after I left the army. So I'd left the army miles beforehand, but because I was still battling with the acceptance of who I was, et cetera, et cetera, and I went off traveling um, to get away from everything, you know, and trying to get my head in the right place. But then I got into sort of like drink and drugs And when you get into that sort of... When did you start drinking? Did you... Oh, I was, I was, drinking, I was, I was drinking when I was in the army. I never drank as a teenager. Um, I, I didn't really How like... How did you guys get, uh, had access to alcohol oh. in the army? Like, just on... You have the army naffy. So you have a... Um, What like is that? Bar, it's like a shop bar sort of thing, which is on every barracks. So you've always got... Um, 
booze and it's, it's um, at a reduction price as well. So I remember you could buy um, a pint of beer in the Naffy for like 90 pence. 90 pence? <laughs> yeah, that can you imagine? Like now, you, now, you, now you know, like these, these, these people are protecting our country. <laughs> Joking aside. Um, but yeah, so th- there is a big drinking culture in the army. Um, and then obviously I left and I carried on drinking. I love drinking, you know, for... For me, a good pint um, is like good sex. You know, it's 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 like having the angels coming down and sort of like <laughs> it's just. I love drinking, you know. So for me, um, I, I can't say it's a a bad thing, um, but it did end up becoming a bad thing because obviously I'm I had you know, my career started going on and off and, you know, I, I went bankrupt with one business in Plymouth and then I, when I moved back to London, um, I got the restaurants and then the stress from the restaurants um, just... On those restaurant you, restaurants you were working as head yeah, chef? Yeah, right? well, from from the ones I was working at and then the one I owned as well. Um, you own a restaurant? Yeah, so I had the two restaurants. I, I owned the food side of it and then another guy owned the bar side of it. Um, and I had the two places and I think the stress, the drinking, the lifestyle, um, it just got too much. Um, you know, I was working seven days a week, drinking, uh, abusing my body. Um, Were you doing any drugs at the time? Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> You know, oh God, yeah. Um, what it kind was, of drugs? It was part of my lifestyle, sort of like coke. Um, that was like mainly the sort of biggest thing at the time. Um, but, and I was in control of it. You know, I was in control. It was just the drinking side, I wasn't. But then when I had the stroke, that was the first time, and I was 36 when I had my stroke. Um, for me, that was the first time... I actually didn't feel indestructible. Like before then, I thought, yeah, I can do anything, like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then suddenly, you know, at the age of 36, and my brother died at the age of 36, um, I had this stroke and I was like, whoa, okay. But then I had to go back to work. I had no choice, you know, it was my business. So I think that's the only mistake that that I could control that I shouldn't have made. I shouldn't have gone back to work. Gone back to work? Yeah. Back. Yeah. Um, because I think then after that, it just, everything started falling apart. Like everything from my relationship to losing my flat to um, both businesses starting to suffer as well. Um, and I had to walk away. So um, I walked away from the business. Um, I um, then decided to go back to university to train in something else. And I'd always been quite artistic. Um, But before I'd even made applications and stuff, my health deteriorated. Um, And I then, I started getting really ill. I was trying to work. I was doing uh, agency work, and um, I, I I got this rash, um, and it was horrendous. It was all over my body, and I went to the hospital, and the guys 
they didn't take any blood tests or anything like that. They just went, oh, it's this thing called Pitocea rosea, which is a like a bacterial imbalance in your body, um, which they said well, it will disappear in about six weeks, six, seven weeks. And it did. It disappeared. I didn't think anything of it. Not knowing at the time that that actually was syphilis. Um, because it then got left, it then turned into neurosyphilis. And the thing is, neurosyphilis can take up to 16 years or 15, 16 years to actually, um, from the first stage of getting syphilis to it becoming neurosyphilis, it, it should take about 15 odd years. But for me, it only took a f- few months, right? And and I didn't know why. I didn't even know I had it. Like, you know, all I know is uh, clumps of my hair were falling out. I was losing my eyesight. Um, I just generally had no energy at all. And at the time, were you at work or just I was, yeah, I was I was doing you... I was I was doing um, temporary work at the time. So this was even before I had managed to get all the applications in to uni. So I was doing temporary work as a chef. Yeah, as a chef, um, trying anyway um, at Biggin Hill Airport. So I was just doing food for private jets, um, for like you know bands and like Arabs and stuff like that. So it was all really sort of like high end stuff. But it wasn't that pressured, so it was quite an easy job. But I was driving home one day, um, and like the, the the lights from other cars were like blinding. I was like, "Man, this is just unbearable," and I knew something wasn't right. And then I, I was like working one day, and the kitchen caught on fire, and I was just I just didn't have a clue what I was doing. I was like, "Wow, what's happening?" So I went to the hospital uh, to my doctor's, and he looked at me and he was talking. He went. Have you had any rashes recently? And I went, yeah. I said, and I'm a bit weird. I take photos of everything. So, and I showed him these photos and he went, hold on a sec. And he made a phone call and he says, I'm sending a guy down. You need to admit him. And I was admitted into hospital straight away. They took tests. They did lumbar punches into my spine. Um, and yeah, and then it turned out that I had neurosyphilis and it was killing me. Um, so suddenly I was put on to this really intense course of, it's like a, um, a part chemo, part penicillin treatment, um, and was having injections every day. I've, I was on about 20 tablets in the hospital. Jesus. Yeah, it was, it was unbelievable. So I was put into there. I was admitted. They started me on the course. Then four days later, from all the blood tests which came back, they said that I had cancer. And I was like, well, hang on a sec. You know, I've come in here for this. I wasn't expecting to be told this. Um, So suddenly they then had to start me on treatment for that as well. Um, But then during the um, treatment um, of for the neurosyphilis, so it's it's quite intense, right? So you have to bend over and they give you two injections in the arse, right? Every single day, plus tablets. What they did, um, and it's intermuscular, so it has to be into the muscle. Um, I think it was about 10 days after, so it was about 14, so two weeks into the course treatment. Um, they did the first injection and everything just went so weird. I had this massive taste of metallic in my mouth and the everything started to echo. And the light, and it was the surrealest thing and I could feel myself going. And then suddenly, don't remember anything. And all I remember was coming to, in the most surrealist of situations, I was on a trolley 
with like these pads all over me, umbrellas over the top of me, and it was raining, and I was like, happening like you know and I was on a paramedic trolley going from the clinic where I was having these injections into the main A&E but through a car park um, because and it was chucking it down with rain and I'll never forget that and I think that sort of that moment has caused me so much trauma um, which then caused my life to then completely sort of um fall apart in a way but not until quite a while because I had that situation and then I spoke to psychologists and they said look everything what's happening at the moment you know you're just through willpower and your mind you're you're managing to cope with but the second everything starts to calm down your your mind's going to implode on itself and I was like yeah yeah whatever whatever and she was right. About that, was, that was like, what, two months of treatment? Yeah. Um, it was full on. Yeah. It was full on. Um, I remember one point um, I was in tears um, phoning my mum. And I was like, I don't understand. What the fuck have I done to somebody for all this to be happening to me? You know, I'd lost my businesses. I'd lost my partner. I'd lost my home at this stage. I was sharing, uh, I was sofa surfing at this point um, at another place. Um, I couldn't work properly. My health had deteriorated so badly from the stroke and everything and all this. And this was all in a six month period. Um, and my mum, she was like, you're being tested, you're being tested. And I was like, well, can he fuck off and test someone else? I said, I can't deal with it. <laughs> like, Are you spiritual yourself? I wasn't. Um, I wasn't at all. Um, I didn't believe in anything like that. Um, but now, I don't know. I believe in something now um, because it's just, you know, as we go on through the stories, you'll find out um, it's just too much of a coincidence, um, you know, to still be sat here looking completely fit. Um, not saying that I'm good looking, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, to look in a perfect sort of like health and that, um, and to be able to talk, to have full movement, you know, and yeah, I, I don't know. Um, there's, there's got to be something else which has kept me going, you know, because obviously this was only the start of things going wrong. You know, I then uh, just if if uh, just uh, uh, if you could uh, rewind a little bit. David. Yeah. Um, so, um, w was it during this time that uh, w were you at uni already when you enrolled no, at uh, no. Met University, right? Yeah, London Met, uh, um, John Cass. And and you had all you you've been through all of that with the rise of tuition fees and uh, high rent costs and. Uh, was a really really difficult period for you as well, wasn't it? Like trying to you know yeah i think get by um i think that's what caused it all um i you, when, when you joined the university and perhaps uh did you did you change your mind uh since do you believe that uh, the university entity in general uh and the uk educational system is it is it something that um you think it changed positively your life did you learn a lot from it do you think it's more like uh, uh especially now with you know, being such an expensive thing for, oh, yeah. for, for, for people to, to, to afford. Do you think it's, um, 
is it something that you truly believe in it? Mm, right. Where do I start? Um, so when I applied to go to uni, um, I'd gone through all the cancer and everything like this. Um, I'd been diagnosed with HIV at this point. Um, so everything at all sort of like, you know, culminated. So I think from my stroke to being diagnosed with HIV was a year. Um, and obviously the neurosyphilis, everything like this. So I decided um, after speaking with my mum, um, I speak to my mum quite a lot now uh, about different things. Um, she said, look, you've always been really artistic. So go and do something artistic. Like, you know, whilst your body's still trying to repair itself, go and like retrain in something. So I applied to university and I applied to do a foundation course, first of all, art course. Um, with, um, but in, uh, and then going on to do a university degree in film production, um, which was probably not the brightest thing to do, film production, because it's a very stressful career. But that was my intention. So I applied and um, I got such a lovely response from the head of the course, John Coleman, um, that I decided to do it. So I went and did my foundation year. Um, and my body started to rebuild. Um, and for me, that was one of the best years of my life um, because not just because um, of the training side of things, it, I met people during that course who inspired me so much um, and actually made me realise that, yes, I'd gone through quite a bit of trauma, but I could use that to raise awareness of those issues so during my foundation course I decided to make a film and I really put myself out there on this film and it was all about HIV um, obviously there's a massive stigma with HIV in this worldwide so by law I don't have to tell people that I have it but I'm a really open person and, and I thought well I'm not ashamed of the fact that I have HIV. It's not my fault. Um, just because I had unprotected sex, um, that that shouldn't come into it because the reason we're all here is because our parents had unprotected sex. Everyone in their lifetime, if they want children, will have unprotected sex at some point. You know, it just happened that during a period of where I had unprotected sex, I contracted HIV. You know, that's the bottom line to it. It doesn't make me a bad person. So I wanted to raise awareness about it. Um, and I made a silent movie. And I included photos of my life, but with film clips of me out in, in parts of London with billboards with statistics of HIV. And all the photos were photos taken before I became HIV. Um, and I wanted to interlink the two together. And then I showed the film and suddenly it was a silent movie and everyone watching it was like, ah, just completely shocked because putting yourself out there in front of everyone in the university who doesn't know that you're HIV and then suddenly you're saying this and they're like, Wow. Yeah, I can only imagine. Yeah. That's, um, yeah. So it was a bit of a, um, you know... It's an admirable thing to do, actually. It was, it was either brave or stupid. Brave, but, um, I would say, yeah. I, 
I got so much from that. And my course leader, John Coleman, was good, like... Good or bad? Do you, do you, what do you mean by that? Yeah, yeah. I, good. I, yeah, everyone's... Um, I had such positive responses from it. Um, I think um, that was one of the first seeds which sort of made me think social art's a good thing to do um, and to raise awareness about issues that I'm going through. So I started doing that during my first foundation foundation year. Um, but then we broke up for the summer. And by this stage, I started getting ill again, uh, mental health um, and addiction problems. Um, I'm not too... Um, what's the word proud of myself um, when you say not. addiction problems uh, was this um, did you have a gap in, in between when you like drinking heavily and consuming cocaine and then enrolling yeah, to university yeah. all of those things that happened so you, so you, you I had, took a had break, a break from, from everything okay. and then when it must have been sort of like the February time of doing my um, foundation course that um my mental health started to suffer really badly. Uh, I don't know why, um, but it did. Um, and I used alcohol and drugs to like self-medicate to try and get me through these periods. But for the first time in my life, the, the drugs actually took control of me instead of me being in control of them. And I'd got into crystal meth um and it basically started to destroy me um so we i think we broke up for the summer period in the may or beginning i think it was the first week of june actually and two weeks later i was killing myself um it was i still don't know why um I remember the day very well. Um, I'd been up all night. I'd had a message from an ex, like, which had really annoyed me. Um, and then suddenly I was then doing this. Um, I was in a park in Highbury Fields. And I don't know. I just I remember being there thinking, wow, like lying in a park at four in the morning. I think it was about four in the morning I was there from. And looking up at the sky and the trees, and it was just so beautiful. And I thought, I don't really want to carry on anymore. And um, and it took me a few hours, and then I did a massive overdose. It must have been about seven in the morning, something like that. Um, and after I'd done it, I'd injected myself. Um, I panicked. And then suddenly realised, you know, when suddenly you could feel everything going into you and it's like, shit, I didn't really want to do this. And I was in part of the park where nobody could see me. So I then, I walked, stumbled, and all I remember was leaning on this lamppost. Um, that's it. That's all I remember. Um, I came to it in an ambulance Um and the guys had said that this couple had followed me across a park um, and thought something wasn't right, phoned an ambulance. When I collapsed, a guy was coming into work who worked at the um, leisure centre, the swimming baths on Highbury Fields, and seen what was going on, had ran over and started resuscitating me. Um, 
Yeah. God, that's intense. I remember being at the hospital and they were trying to get blood from me. And I was still really confused at what had happened and stuff like this. And they couldn't get any blood from me. And I was just like, come on. I said, I can even find a vein. That, that's easy. Like, you know, just stick it in. Like, and he went, no, it's not that we can't find your vein. We can't get any blood out. And they put this needle in. It was huge. Um, and they drew out and they put the, the what I thought was the blood. They poured it, like pushed it out of the syringe and it piled up like jelly. Uh, and it crystallised. It was the most unbelievable thing I'd seen. Um, and what happened afterwards? I mean, uh, did you did you manage given to a lo- stay away from it or no? Because um, obviously you you were addicted at this point. Yeah, um, I came out of hospital, um, spoke with my parents, and told them that I tried killing myself. Um, so I had to go away um, for a while. Came back. Um, I think about a month later after being down with my family being with my family it was lovely but it was also like hell Um, for me it was like being in a prison type thing Um, you know it's they were watching every move I did you know so I couldn't be myself so I said I can't deal with this I've got to go back to uni anyway so I came back to London and um, came back to my flat to find that all the locks had been changed. Um, so suddenly I was like, shit, i got nowhere to live. But I was like, no, I can deal with this. I, I can do this. I, I, you know, I was in the army, for God's sake. I can survive. Um, but... That's when you went to sleep and live yeah, for a while in your in my old, car, uh, my little car. my little Peugeot, Peugeot two or six. Yeah, it was. Um, it's quite weird, right? Because even though I was living in a car, it was quite fun times. Um, that, that contradicts everything about homelessness. Um, because being homeless was sheer hell for me. I hated it. Right, I absolutely hated it. But that whole survival instinct comes out of you. So I had a little gas stove and because I didn't want anyone to know I was homeless either, I'd be like boiling water and shaving and like making myself look really neat and tidy all the time. Um, Cause I was ashamed as well. No one at my uni knew. Um, I was still trying to go to uni. I had no money at all. Um, what do you do for shower when you live? In so the I used to go to the uni and oh, use right, the showers of there. So, they have so facilities, yeah, right? exactly. So that was fine. Food-wise, I was getting out of bins. There was um, a deli which used to throw away their food every night, um, but all vacuum packed. Yeah, I, I ate really bloody well while I was on, on the streets. I didn't use any of the homeless services, um, and I was like that for six months. Um, but did you try at the time any any food banks or or like no 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 no, no. no I didn't try anything um, because and I know you've because, tried because I didn't want anyone to know mm-hmm. right so um, in the end it did get too much for me my my uni work was suffering um, I was losing my temper a lot I, I don't, I'm I'm not an angry person per se and I was losing my I was getting angry with like lecturers and I was having arguments and yeah you, know, you, you were under I mean under pressure yeah. living in your car and, yeah. and and with 
in retrospect with everything that you lived, all the health issues and all that. Um, but like, for example, uh, I know you, you, you've tried and, and you faced some, some difficulty in terms of, uh, in regards of uh, getting uh, benefits uh, from the government. And you, you applied for like personal independence payment, um, uh, which replaced the disability yeah, living yeah. allowance. Yeah. And um, which focus on on how claimants um, health problems after their ability to work, isn't it? And um, well, rather than that, actually, the health problems instead of the the, the, the their ability yeah. to work. But then, uh, how how what what put you in a position where? Oh my goodness! I mean, I've tried this, I've tried that, and I'm trying to explain people. You even got a letter from uni. You've got yeah. a letter from uh, the clinic that you were under uh, going treatment at the time. You've got all of those things together. You've got yep. a history, and and then you end up with a door on your face. Yeah. Um, can you just please explain us a little bit uh, about? Uh, what was all, all about? And, and, I mean, what's, the, this, the, the, this sounds the, the, really so the, crazy. When, yeah. when you told so, me and when, when I read about it, I was like, my goodness, this, this is just not right. I know. Mm. It's, it's, it's crazy because the biggest problem, so I had all these letters, you know, that I had all the medical letters from all my consultants and doctors and stuff like this, you know, saying I had problems, I needed housing because I couldn't take any of my HIV meds. So whilst I was living in a car because I didn't have anywhere safe and secure to keep them, you know, everything was going against me. My health was deteriorating really, really badly. I'd lost so much weight. I'd gone down to 65 kilos or something like this. I was tiny. Um, and the problem was, was that I was a student. So in this country, as a student, oh, mega you're not policy, right? exactly. You're not you're not entitled to any help at all, from housing benefit to disability. The only help you're allowed is the PIP, right? I got my uni to fill out the forms for the PIP and Just apply. Just one quick question about that. Uh, sorry to interrupt yeah. you, David, uh, but uh, I know the policy. Um uh, stops students to claim housing benefit and all that. But then the policy says that apart from the most vulnerable, yes. and I just wonder uh, they, what, what, what fits that bill if not your well, case? So <laughs> that's the case, right? So they didn't class me as most vulnerable because I had sh shelter. So because I had a car. And shelter being your car. Yeah. Crazy, isn't it? That's crazy. Yeah. So, and this was a problem. So, in the end, it got to stage. So, obviously, it got to the, the fatal day of um, I was ending my life again um, in a park when this was the day what changed everything for me. So, it was the day the park enforcement officer, Gavin, stopped me killing myself in the park. Um, it was a locked park late at night completely dark you know no one could see I was there I was just administering two grams of crystal meth which was enough to kill an elephant um, so the doctor told me um, and suddenly there was a guy there and stopped me Gavin um, I recently found out he basically then sat talked with me um, got me some food got me uh, gave me some money and got me into a night shelter. Um, that night shelter was run by the Pillion Trust. 
uh, where I teach at now. Um, and after speaking with them, we made the decision the only way I could get help was by having to quit uni, which for me, I didn't want to do because for me, because that was the only thing what was keeping me focused, keeping me going, keeping me surviving. But it got to that stage that I was trying to take my life so much that, no, you have to compromise. So I had to make the biggest compromise compared to what the government did because obviously they want people to retrain to work so they don't use benefits. I was trying to live without those benefits, but ultimately failing. So I had to quit uni um, and that was meant that I could then get into a permanent homeless hostel, um, which I did. Um, but yeah, um, for me, giving up the uni was very difficult for me. Did you, you, you never managed to, no, to go back? I never so managed you did not finish to, the No, I never foundation. finished it. Um, I finished the foundation. You finished yeah, the foundation, um, but not but the degree. Not the actual degree. Right. Um, so going back to your original question of do I think um, universities and that is good. Yes, I think everyone should have the entitlement and aspire to go to university. But ultimately, you do not need those qualifications to be able to make it in the industries you want to go into. Um, you know, I'm I'm doing all right um, with my social um art without those qualifications but it's because university gave me that ability to recognize that I can use my trauma in my artwork you know the day I quit uni um, I spoke to the course leader then Rosemary um, I can never say her name properly Rosemary McCaldrick um, who's an amazing amazing person and she said to me I was in tears like having to quit uni and I because I didn't want to do it and I sat with her and she said look David she said remember this time and in years to come you'll look back on it and be able to use this not only to better your artwork but be able to help other people um and that that that's always stuck with me. And, and that's more or less what uh, yeah, uh, that's led what you to the, yeah, that's perhaps uh, the the UK's one homeless yeah, festival, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Please tell us a bit about that. Yeah, which is Ooh. an amazing thing. I mean, I've been lucky and blessed to to be part of it, uh, yeah, helping you've seen out, it a couple of years and now, I've seen it a couple so. of years, and it's just phenomenal because um, we don't get to hear about those things no. from any. Uh, big or mainstream um, media outlet out there and wow you get homeless people coming and singing and uh, acting and playing music and writers and painters and performers and people they're like where did you do that well I did that out in the street but how how can you paint like that living yeah. without without well, shelter or any sort of uh, um, support you know, uh, it's massive. It's really, really interesting. And this is the reason I, I wanted to set up the festival. So obviously I've seen both sides of the art world. I see the, the guys coming in to the universities who are from a, a well-off background who 
people have the resources to be able to make a career in the art world. Um, and they're lucky to have that. But then I also see the guys who can create amazing artists, amazing, amazing artists out there who have the ability to smash the art world to pieces with their artwork, right? And just go, look, this is what real art's about. This is like truly amazing stuff. But they just happen to be homeless and don't have the resources or the um, the um, access to the art world. And, and I think that's really unfair. And Nicholas Srota, who obviously was the head of the Tate and now head of uh, the British Arts Council, turned around and said, look, how can we open the art world to everyone? Well, I'll tell you, open the doors and accept everyone. Don't judge them just because they just happen to be homeless or they just happen to have mental health or they just happen to be disabled. You know, surely... Everyone should be given those chances. So that's where the sort of like the 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 whole um, plan of how where I hope the festival to help with. The idea came from an organisation called With One Voice, and they're an international um, homeless arts movement, um, which I'm uh, proud to be a member of. Um, and they um, they had a. Um, a summit in London where they had uh, people over from Brazil, uh, a delegation from Brazil, and there was a guy talking about playing a flute busking in a park, and he was busking with other um, musicians who just happened to be homeless. And and for me, he, he then talked about this, and he was so passionate about what he was doing, and it became this small little gathering festival of musicians all just happened to be homeless. like, And it was just... Something sort of like, sort of like, you know, you get the light bulb moment. It's like ding, and I went, wow. I wonder if we could do something like this in London, because there's so many art groups in London and around the UK who do their artwork in little basement rooms, and no one ever gets to see the artwork, and you know, and it's all shut away. And I thought, how can I bring all these different organisations together um, in a place? And when Jacob from the diorama asked me to be um, the artist in residence. Well, actually, before he even asked me to be artist in residence, I told him about this idea of a festival of homeless arts. And he was like, wow, this sounds amazing. Um, and, yeah, it, it was sort of hatched. Um, and I'm so proud of it because to do it with no funding... You know, and to do it with the generosity of the diorama, um, giving us the space and the gallery space um, to be able to do it, and British land as well, to and Regent's Place to let us go and use the outside spaces, you, that's unheard of. Like, and every art group volunteers their artwork. The the dancers all volunteer, the actors all volunteer, the musicians, the you know everyone is there because they want to raise awareness of these amazingly great artists. Like this year, we had stuff from Brazil, we had stuff from uh, uh, Japan, Sweden. Um, next year, um, I've already spoken to people in uh, Toronto who are sending stuff over. Um, I hope to have stuff coming over from Seattle, you know, and, and bring it all together. And surely that, that, 
that should be celebrated. Absolutely. Do you know what I mean? And Absolutely. You, yes, I didn't get much uh, media coverage or anything like that this year. Um, but that's because, in a way, I didn't try to get media coverage because I wanted the festival to be about the artists. You know, I want them to come to the space and be surrounded by other people who love art, you know, they didn't know who was homeless. They didn't know um, who 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 had painted what or who was involved. You know, everyone was just in there, connected together, talking, hugging, sharing stories. And you know, uh, as an artist myself, my most powerful tool I have is being able to tell a story. You know, and I do that through my artwork, and I do it through the festival, and and I I, I encourage people, and I just want to. Pr- I just want to prove to people that no matter what life throws at you, you can pick yourself up, you know, and I want to give people that opportunity, that chance to put their art on the wall, get the recognition from it, and if they feel good about that, they might then think, I want to carry on and do this. You know, I want, I want, I want people to see it more because it makes me feel good. And the more they feel good the better chance they're going to have of helping them, their, their body, their minds, their situation recover. You know, because for these guys, homelessness, it's only a small part of who they are. You know, they're, they're amazing, talented people who just happen to be homeless. And some of these guys may have only been homeless for a couple of months and they're in their 40s. But... They're, they're and what do you think that this, this, this is happening? Like more and more people are becoming homeless and obviously mental issues being like uh, talked about big time these days. And But, but we're still, even for us who are interconnected, we do talk to people, we live in a very uh, 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 multicultural place, which is London, and we talk to all backgrounds and different kinds of people it's still difficult to like okay great uh, i'm feeling a lot of anxiety i'm feeling a little bit depressed I, i'm not seeing where my life is leading me where do i go for help you know it, it's still it's still very very complicated to go and get uh back to what we were saying yeah. earlier on yeah. the basics you know yeah. can can somebody please do we have a place where we go so i can sit down at least an hour a week and chat with somebody that can perhaps help me work through all this stuff that doesn't stop popping in my mind and uh you know did you did you have any experience uh yourself uh, uh with support psychological support during uh, your days and are you aware of anything i know that mine does a good job but but still even myself years ago i tried mine but it's still Bureaucratic. It's not. Oh, but yeah. It's not yeah. something easy, you know. And some people just, uh, just you know, at, in the face of difficulties, they just. Ra- oh, do you know what? I won't. Bo- I, I can't. Yeah. So, can't be asked. And 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 that's one of the biggest problems because right. So homelessness um, is very very complex. You know, um, people can become homeless from a death of a family member. Um, from someone breaking a nail, from someone um, getting into debt, gambling, addiction, mental health, drinking, um, um, private landlords, loss of a job. You know, it's, it's so complex, right? But 
another uh, big part of it is the mental health um, and um, the lack of facilities and the lack of a structure in place in this country or worldwide actually of being there to help you when you need it you know i personally believe if you can manage to um get a system like so if you break a leg you go into a and e six hours later you come out there in a cast fixed right you go into a and e with mental health problems no way do you even get seen right you know um i had been in and out of the hospital after so many suicide attempts but let to walk out the door do you know what i mean so i think they need to have a structure in place where the mental health structure is exactly the same as an a and e department so you have an a and e department but you also have a mental health department as well where you have psychologists you have doctors on hand to help you straight away from the second you feel bad because the thing is if you feel suicidal man the world would be a better place yeah exactly right if you feel suicidal you're suicidal in that moment you need help that moment you're not going to go and sit in the a and e department for six hours do you know what i mean by that time you're dead like, you know, you've made that decision. You know, once you've made that decision to kill yourself, everything is so much clearer in your head of how to do stuff, how you're going to feel when you've killed yourself. Like, you know, you're completely calm. You accept it. You go, yep, done it. You feel good, right? And that's what... You're not going to go and sit in A&E once you've made that decision. So this is the problem. There are some... I, I, I was very lucky, right, that... And this sounds really weird... I was very lucky that I'm HIV positive because I have access to um, psychological and um, patient representatives because becoming HIV is quite a massive blow to your mental state um, and they have the facilities there that if stuff does go wrong that you can get help pretty quick. Like, you know, not instant, but pretty quick. I can go and see a representative between nine and five monday to friday um if i'm feeling really bad um i can get psychological treatment within a few days but if you're not high hiv you don't have that opportunity right but now so that should be implemented for yeah, yeah. the general public oh, yeah, yeah exactly right it should it should be there but they don't you know they don't have enough psychologists they don't have enough doctors um they don't even have enough people working in a&e's like you know so well, they're, yeah, they're not going to yeah. they're not going to put more money into with it the nhs and the pressure exactly. like it is currently the, the problem is is i personally believe that our government we have at the moment has done this on purpose right to put fear into the country so then they can come back and say well this is why it needs to be privatized this is why it needs if we privatize it it'll be so much better and blah 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 you know it's i i'm a conspiracy person like you know i see what they do in a sort of subversive sort of way and that's how i believe i think they're doing this on purpose they're trying to make it this is why they're coming out with these apologies now oh we apologize like we apologize no you don't you don't care hmm. because you know that what you're trying to do so that, anyway i'm i'm diversing <laughs> so there is now so there's um um a tv presenter called Anna Richardson, um, who um, is on Channel 4. Um, 
sadly, she lost a family member to suicide um, because of mental health uh, breakdowns and stuff like that. She's now created a 24-7 website um, called Mindbox, um, and which is there to um, be that instant help. Um, so if people are going, you know, are, are feeling suicidal or, or they're, they're, they feel they're having a breakdown, there will be somebody there who can help. Um, and it's 24-7 online. Um, and Mindbox, yeah. Mindbox. Um, I, I highly recommend people, if they are starting to feel some sort of um, um, feelings that they're suicidal, um, to look into help as soon as possible. Um, because it's not just the, it's not just them who's suffering. It's their family members as well. Because deep down their family members sort of know there's something wrong. You know, my, my family were devastated when they found out that I tried killing myself. Um, they, they were a little bit angry with me um, that I hadn't talked about it. But um, it's funny because I never used to talk about anything, um, my mental health or, you know, my problems or anything like this. Um, I was renowned for being quite isolated. Um, but the way I look at it now, I don't have anything to lose, you know, because I, I lost everything before. Looking back, do you think uh, that uh, you you were private in a sense um, because was there any looking back now and thinking why did you not speak more to perhaps your parents till the age of 16 when you're living with them um do you see any any traits that maybe make made you feel and be in such a way because i'm i'm quite similar you know i i didn't speak much uh, with my parents at the time and at the time i didn't quite understand but nowadays looking back mm -hmm. i understand why I behave in the way uh, because people are behaving towards me in certain ways and and then obviously uh, when people sometimes uh, don't really connect with things that are really important for you or sometimes even uh, tell you that you're wrong by pursuing uh, whatever you're pursuing at a time uh, you kind of become like okay then so yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not talking about it and if I'm not talking about that I'm not talking about things that are important to me and if I'm not talking about things that are important to me why am I going to talk exactly so uh, I, I think that's the thing um, I think I don't know whether it's because I came from a big family so we didn't get to see my dad very often like he'd be working all the time mum would work on the farm as well um, and so it was like it was, yeah, it was just I don't know I, 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 I thought I was always very very independent you know, I, I I always believed that I could do everything myself. You know, if if somebody, I, I'm a bit like it now still. You know, with my artwork. You know, when I, I think of an idea, I go, oh, yeah, I can do that. I can do. It. Yeah, I'll just teach myself to do it. Like you know, and that's um, positive. Yeah, it's it is. Good. Um, but it also it has its drawbacks because then you sort of you isolate everything and you do it all yourself. Um, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I don't know where whether it was because of all, you know, me believing that I could do everything myself. Um, I didn't talk about it. Um, I guess that was probably part of it as well. Um, yeah. 
Cool. Um, David, can you just uh, tell us a little bit about um, the Museum of um, Museum of Homelessness in London? Uh, you and uh, Jessica and Matt Turtle um, did this um, interview for the New York Times. And uh, can you just tell us a little bit about uh, what the Museum of Homelessness is all about? Yes. Um So, where do I start with this? So, Museum of Homelessness is, a, at the moment, a homeless museum. Um, not just because it's about homelessness, it's actually also homeless as well. We don't have a, a, a premise at the moment. Um, I'm on their core group, um, and I was invited to obviously do the show at the Tate Modern with them. Um, it's about... Creating a safe space to um, celebrate, I guess, um, celebrate the stories of the homeless community from back in the 1950s up until present. And it's about archiving. Because the thing is, you have um, museums of everything nowadays. You have museums about sex, you have it about immigration, you have it about um, teaspoons, you have, uh, um, you know, glasses, etc. But there's, there's never been one about homelessness. And ho homelessness is quite a intense issue in this country at the moment, has been for the past 50 years. Um, and just because somebody lives on the street... It doesn't mean that they don't deserve the right to have their story told. Um, and so we're trying to archive and give voices to those stories um, from past to present. That's the main sort of structure. But it's also the museum, we want to teach people about homelessness. And the reason we want to do this is um, and we, we, we've... we've created a school pack which can go out to colleges and schools and stuff like this um, is to try and break down the stigma um, which there is towards homelessness in this country um, and educate people um, I think you know the world you know it's all about education yeah it is again, you it? know it is it's, a, it's about teaching people that you know if you teach people about uh, and educate people about homelessness they're more inclined to go and talk to that person in the street instead of being scared of them i don't understand how somebody can be scared of talking to a homeless person on the street when it's just another human being yeah i'll, I'll, I'll tell you something about that um I, I obviously I grew up in Brazil and uh, very very poor areas like uh, way poorer than here yeah. places where um, you have if you're a homeless person in Brazil um, you you have literally nowhere to to hide nowhere to run to uh, it's pretty desperate yeah. you you I mean here you can still find a food bank on desperate situations you can still uh, say you still have a system that you know uh, offers you uh, um, uh, benefits yeah. uh, for, for for people uh, out of employment and, and and housing benefit and all that business um, in Brazil you can't get you don't have access to to that yeah. the, the system is, is way different there have been improvements but it's far from ideal And obviously, when you see somebody out in the street, a, a little kid, a teenager, or old people, man, you know that you, if, if you give them like a sandwich and a cup of coffee, man, they will devour that. They will yeah. 
eat it. They will enjoy it. What I find it really difficult in like uh, in the UK, even in America, uh, I've just been, I, I've had two situations that really put me off because I used to always stop and talk to these people on the yeah. street, you know. I used to do that. Yeah. And I don't do it anymore. And I, I started to pay attention on my behavior. Why uh, nowadays in London, walking by and I pass by somebody sitting on the street with a sign, uh, smile more and please give me some money or something like that. Why do I not stop and have a chat with these people? I don't feel compelled to do it anymore. And I was just trying to understand. Well, I've had two uh, uh, situations recently that uh, really put me off from doing it. One, I was in Philadelphia a couple of months ago in America and this guy was just sitting on the street and with a big sign, I'm hungry. I'm really, I'm hungry, something like that. I'm desperate, I'm hungry. I walked past, didn't speak to him, but then as I walked past, I was just like with that image in my head and I thought, oh, wait a minute, um, if he's hungry, I'm gonna get him some food. So I went to the shop around the corner, I bought him like a big bowl of beautiful salad, very, very nice, and a sandwich as well. Went to the guy, handed that to him. God bless you, mate. Please do eat it, you're hungry, eat that all. I turned my back and I walked away and I didn't kind of like, I had a feeling that I didn't, didn't feel right for some yeah. reason. Anyway, I turned uh, around the block and then I decided to just watch him. And as I watched him, he basically took that food, stood up, walked inside the building behind, which was a public building and uh, came back with nothing in his hands, no food in his hand and put the sign up again. And I was just thinking, okay, fine. He could have just kept the food for later. But like, if I am hungry out in the street asking for food and yeah, somebody exactly. gives me food, uh, I'm going to eat it. Yeah, Do you yeah. know what I mean? Uh, in, in London, it happened to me just around the corner from here, Sainsbury's. Oh, okay, yeah. uh, went out of Sainsbury's, this guy sitting out there with a sign saying, I'm hungry. Same situation. I passed by and I was like, wait a minute, I'm going to get him some food. Went back into Sainsbury's, didn't acknowledge the guy prior to it, went to Sainsbury's, bought some food, handed it to him, right? Turned the block, looking at him, he got that and put away in his bag. Okay, he could have put, put in that away just to perhaps share with somebody later on. Exactly, yeah. It could have been the case of, of, of all of that. But um, it, it's a very tricky situation, you know. Um, sometimes I, I wonder, like, you see people out in the street and it's just like, um, are you out in the street because of what? Have you have you really tried yeah. to find help or tried to find work or, or anything Problem like that? Is, it's complicated. It's, it's, yeah, it is complicated. Like, because to be able to get work, you have to have an address, like an actual uh, um, premise to live. Um to get benefits if you're on the streets you can't you need to have a, an address um the see i don't give money or food or anything like that to people on the streets um i'd rather give it to one of the charities that i support um plus also because i do so much awareness of homelessness now i think you know i think i'm doing all right i think i'm doing enough um I will stop and talk with some of them. I, there's a lot I won't stop and... It's, it's quite weird. Being an ex-homeless person myself, I can pretty much tell who's actually a legit 
homeless person or who's not. That's the thing, exactly, isn't it? Right? Nowadays, yeah. you kind of have to have the eye to spot yeah, that. Exactly. And Whereas in Brazil, is, if you see somebody on the street, yeah. you don't think twice. I mean, yeah. that guy, man. Yeah, exactly. You look at him and you yeah. can tell straight away. You exactly. don't have to actually make up And this mind. is the problem. But then I also then think, you know, th- there, there's people begging on the streets and I think, well, there's a reason they're begging, you know? It's because of desperation, you know? Um, so... It's a really difficult one. Um, and I always think, well, you don't have to give money, you don't have to give food, but saying hello to somebody is okay, like, or just eye contact. Like, yeah, you're right. Um, yeah, I always try and, like, yeah, uh, yeah. on my own way to kind of, like, send a blessing and yeah. and, and, and just, ask whatever energy is out there. Just don't beat them up or, or piss yeah, on them. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they don't like that. <laughs> David, great. Let's kind of like um, start wrapping up this conversation. Yeah. It has been amazing. Thank you very much for 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 uh, yeah taking the time and and coming pleasure, here. Um, I always found uh, all of the things that we talked uh, uh, here at Arama extremely interesting. And just now uh, getting to know you better and better, man, it's just uh, it's 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 amazing. It's amazing, and and I do believe that you are doing. Uh, amazingly well and and going through Hopefully. everything that you they've that been through you yeah. know certainly there's more uh ahead of you uh i'd like to uh start wrapping up with a few uh roller coaster questions like uh, if you uh do you have or uh follow any morning routines rituals yeah i do actually um so i wake up i get out of bed i feed my cat boris is cool as um and then i will have my breakfast i then finish my breakfast what do you normally have for breakfast do you have something oh, um, in particular do you eat everything oh, always some, different always either different. cereal toast fruit um eggs um it's always different um i have to have a certain amount of calories about 370 calories um in the mornings because then i take my meds um taking my meds last uh, you know you know to take them out done and that's my illnesses then for the rest of the day i don't think about them um and then i have um a double shot coffee um and then i go and get showered good stuff um i know i asked you this earlier on but do you um have any spiritual practice something that you would normally do Not really. Um, I should do. Um, I should do breathing techniques because I have uh, chest and heart problems and stuff like that now. Have you ever um, tried meditation? Yeah, um, I've tried chimes as well, um, like the breathing between chimes and stuff like that. So it's something. I, What is that? You know, What? So you breathe between the chimes of the bells. So um, it, it's the same beat all the way through, and then you breathe, hold it in, breathe out. Interesting. And it's, mm. and I've what, never heard about that, that does, but that, that sounds it, interesting. It, it helps uh, balance, rebalance your blood flow. Um, it helps rebalance the blood going into your brain because being so tall, it only goes part of the way up, so it doesn't go, and yeah, etc. So I, sh- I should I should do it more often, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit lazy when it comes to stuff like that. <laughs> um What would someone who doesn't like you say about you? Oh, 
probably really bad stuff. Um, <laughs> um, they'll say that I'm stubborn. Um, I am extremely stubborn. They'd say that I'm extremely selfish, um, which I am. Um, but it's quite weird. I'm selfish. If I'm in a relationship, I'm selfish with my time because, um, yeah, that they'd probably... I'm trying to think what else they'd say if they really don't like me. They'd probably say loads of crap, like, you know, but, you know, good on them, like, because there's people I don't like and I'll say a lot of fucking words. Fair enough. Fair play. <laughs> you know, not everyone's going to like for, me. Not thanks it, for the answer. Like, you know, they'd be like, oh, they'd probably be like, oh, you're just a dirty, unclean addict or something like that, you know. Or so, you know, yeah. it, nothing really phases me anymore. I'm my biggest judge, so... Yeah. Excellent. That's how it should be, right? Yeah. Uh, what kind of food do you go for when uh, you when in need of a treat, basically? Is there anything in particular that comes to mind that you would be like, oh, you know what? I want to treat myself. I'm going to cook tonight this dish or I'm just going to buy a takeout or something. See, I've got a really bad sweet tooth um, and I love tiramisu. Ooh. I absolutely love tiramisu. Um So yeah, that that's quite a treat. Um, creme brulee, love it. I'm not allowed dairy no more because of my tablets and stuff affects all my stomach. So yeah, I, I that's sort of like a treat, but then I regret it afterwards, um, <laughs> and I'm like in pain. Um, I love Chinese. I love Thai food. Um, I do like pizza. Um, oh, yeah. who doesn't? Oh God, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I sort of like. Um, I, I'm quite simple when it comes to, like, you know, uh, my tastes of food and stuff. Um, you know, I, I'm sort of like old school. I like a stew or a casserole or nice. a roast. And, nice. and roast isn't really my favorite, but... What's a perfect day on David's life? Uh, perhaps try and give me a bit of detail, like, uh, what would be, you know, morning, afternoon, evening? It could be as simple as or as crazy as... Perfect day. Oh, um, waking up not feeling crap. That would probably be the... Do you know what? I, I'd, I'd tell you what would be the perfect day for me. Being able to wake up and know I wasn't ill. Does that make sense? It makes absolute sense. Because for the past six years now, I've had to wake up and I'm automatically reminded every day that I'm not 100% fit because of the amount of tablets and that I have to take. It'd be nice to actually wake up and not have to go through that. That would be a perfect day for me. Good stuff. Uh, one last question. Uh, what are you reading at the moment if you are reading anything at the moment? I knew you were going to say something like this. <laughs> um... Or perhaps any recommendations See, that you might have for people in general. I, I've got several books um, I keep flitting between at the moment. And um, it's I can't remember his first name, but it's... Uh, oh, it's really just gone out of my head. Cosay, is it Cosay? Uh, he, he wrote Dis Disgrace, and it won the, uh, um, the Booker Prize a few years back. And I'm trying to think, J.M. Kweezy, I can't pronounce his name, but um, it's an amazing book. He's a South African writer, um, and it's 
it's probably one of the best books you ever read. That's worth Great. checking out. Well, if you don't um, remember the details, but please send. send yeah, it over I will to do. Me yeah, to me. it's 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 amazing. And then there's um, a, a true story um, about uh, an ex drug runner um, called Warren Fellows, Australian guy who went uh, got jailed in a Thai prison um, called Damage Done, um, and uh, it's he never asks for redemption or forgiveness or anything like that he he's completely honest about look i did this but did i really deserve this um and it it talks about his time in prison and it's horrific um very powerful book um it made me it's one of those books it makes you cry it makes you you don't you sort of feel sorry for him but you don't at the same time um yeah amazing book Good stuff. I, I've lent that book to so many people. Um, oh, that's good to know. So, yeah. yeah, it's one of those books. It's special. Um, and then um, any Terry Pratchett book. All right. I, I like the wizards and the fun and the, the fantasy side because you can sort of like get lost. Absolutely. Absolutely. David, thank you very much. It's My been a pleasure. pleasure. My pleasure. All the best. And you. Cheers. I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation this podcast as much as I did doing it. So if that's the case, please do follow on Instagram at RollerCoasterCarl, myself at Carl Casagrande, on Twitter, same thing, Facebook, same thing. Uh, Do subscribe, do subscribe on iTunes, subscribe on Spotify, That's very, very much appreciated. Thank you and have a great, great day. Cheers. Bye-bye.